What does it mean to lead with purpose and passion? In Romans 12:8, we're told in some versions to lead with all diligence. That's a King James Version. But there's other versions, and I actually like what it says here. The leader, if you have the gift of leadership, should lead with what? We should lead with passion. Lead with passion. Leading with purpose presupposes two things, has two elements. First of all, it's motive. There's motive, and secondly, there's intention. Motive is the reason why you lead, the justification for leadership. And the intention is the aim, the object, the, the target of your leadership. And the reason to lead is really to impact lives for eternity, isn't that right? It's the only reason we are putting ourselves in the position of attack, in the firing line, is that we are leading with the purpose of impacting lives for all eternity. And that's the best thing that we could do. And passion speaks about how you lead. It speaks about the mood in which you lead. It's passion is fervor and enthusiasm. It's a certain kind of zeal and vigor in leadership that we should have. We should have energy. But the truth is, is that while we're under attack, our energy wanes. Isn't that right? Yeah. Our zeal wanes. We have dark nights of questioning God whether or not we're really doing the right thing, whether or not we, Lord, did I really hear your voice when you said, go and do this? Lord, was it really you or was it me? Did I eat pizza and go to sleep? What was it, Lord? We have those moments, but we are to lead with fervor and enthusiasm. And this morning, I want to share with you some leadership concepts to bring us back to passion and to bring us back to that fervor that God expects us to have. Before we do that, though, I'd like to just say a word of prayer. Would you just bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we know that as we talk in a group like this, as we meet, it's not simply to come to get information, but it's also to get inspiration and insight that only comes from your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, speak to us in ways that are far beyond anything that I could say and touch the hearts that are here and bring encouragement to their soul and strengthen us to do your work. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. I want us to look at three areas today. We're going to look at three main areas. The first one is keeping focus. The second one is keeping heart. And the third one is keeping sane. Keeping focus is looking at God's way of leadership, understanding what leadership means from the Bible. The second, keeping heart, is looking at God's way of success. When we look at success in the way the world views it, and we look at ourselves and our ministry, sometimes we get discouraged. So I want us to keep heart by looking at God's way to understand success, and also keeping sane, God's way with people. How do we deal with, how do we address people in ministry? Because truth be told, leadership is about people, and without people, there's no reason to lead. Keeping focus, God's way of leadership. Now, if you're a student of leadership at all, if you read your Bible at all, you'll notice that every major leader in the Bible experienced failure. Let me say that again. Every major leader in the Bible experienced failure, significant loss. Most of them were fired from their positions. Did you realize that? You only have to think of... Abraham and Jacob and people like Joseph and Moses to think about being fired from their positions or being reassigned or getting it all wrong. But they were all called by God. That's significant. Some were misguided. They found themselves in deep trouble. In fact, they went into hiding. They ran from mortal danger and many were on the wrong side of the law. They had to pay the price of leadership. Lost home, lost status lost wealth, lost security. And though, although greatly distressed, greatly flawed and troubled, they learned God's way of leadership. And it took some hard knocks and some hard lessons to do that. I want you to think about Luke chapter 9 and verse 3. Jesus says this, and, and he says this in this context. He's about to send out his disciples into ministry, into the field. I want you to put yourself in that position. He's sending you out as ASI members to do what he has called you to do. And he says, take nothing for the journey, no walking stick, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra shirt. Now, if you're going to send someone out into ministry or into a battlefield, why in the world would you tell them, take no walking stick, 
take no bag, take no food, take no money, and don't take even an extra set of clothes. Why would Jesus say something like that? You see, when we walk with God, our baggage has to be left at home. Because now that we walk with God, we look to him to provide everything. Didn't Jesus say, what the heathen worry about, you should never worry about. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things, the bags and the money and the clothes, they will be added unto you. And in a very powerful way, speaking to the first leaders of the Christian church, he says, I don't want you to take stuff with you. The baggage is best left at home. I just want you to go and depend on me to provide for your needs on every level. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we can't help others and lead our ministries when our hands are full holding onto our own stuff. Now, I want to pause there, and I want you to think about that. Attachments of pride and love of possessions and status, secret sin, whatever it is, it has to be let go. This is a primary, just that the entry-level step into leadership with Christ is that we must relinquish who we are. Understanding God's way of leadership points us to two stark realities. You know, before I go into that, one of the reasons that God permits us to go through challenges and opposition as leaders is to free us from the things that dwarf our ministry. Believe it or not, myself included, we all have blind sides. We all have elements within our character that prevent us from growing and advancing as we lead. And God permits only what we can take and only those things that will structure us and shape us and mold us in such a way as to be the most effective people we can be. I said effective and not efficient. Because you can be efficient but not effective. God wants us to be the most effective people that we can possibly be. We often focus on IQ and skill development and targets and goals, but God shapes our hearts to serve. Because naturally, I'll tell you from personal experience, naturally I really don't want to serve. That was God shaping my heart towards service. You see, the experience of leadership is to change you also. We normally look at leadership as something outside of ourselves and apart from ourselves. It's something that we do. But a leader is a person that you become. And God intends that the leadership walk will shape you as you impact others for Jesus Christ. God does not use us, ladies and gentlemen. God does not commoditize you and me. I want us to understand this point. He cares about who you become as you lead in ministry. Part of leading is allowing that experience, negative and positive, to do something to you. And normally what happens, I can say, I can give you an example. You know, uh, as a pastor, as you stand by the door and people come along and and, and they shake your hand and say, Pastor, that was a wonderful message. Oh, thank you for that message. The next person comes along and says, Pastor, that was a great message. Thank you for that message. And another person comes along and says, Wonderful message. Can I get a recording? And then one person comes along and they say, Well, that was all right, but I didn't like it too much. Now, when you go home for lunch, and you speak to your wives or your husbands, what's the first thing that you say? You know, there was someone who told me that I was no good and my message wasn't any good. And you always knew that person was a little strange anyway. But still, we, we tend to remember that, that negative element. You see, leadership should change us and balance us. And balance us. God doesn't use us. He seeks to equip us. He's concerned about who we become in ministry. Understanding leadership God's way points to two realities. You are not in control. God is. Amen. Now I know you know this, but I think it was Samuel Johnson who said, most men and women don't need to be taught, just reminded. So let me remind you of a few things here. You are not in control. God is in control. Do you remember Noah's Ark? Oh, you can talk to me. You remember Noah's Ark? God told Noah to build an ark. We know the story. In the world, there was no other means but the ark to be saved from the flood. And Noah preached for how many years? 120 years. And how many people came to the altar call? 
Well, we know what the results were. Largely fell on deaf ears. But when the first few drops of rain were felt, everyone wanted to be in the ark. Isn't that right? But you see, Noah couldn't open the ark. God had set the limits. God had determined when probation would close. God had shut the door, and only God could open it again. Now, whose ark was it? Whose ark was it? God's ark. We always say Noah's ark, but it really wasn't Noah's ark at all. It was fully God's ark. Second point is understanding the difference between leading and managing. Now this is pertinent to understanding whose ark you are sailing right now. Let's call your ministry an ark. It is there, it has been provided, it has been created so that you can save lives, impact people for eternity. Who's leading and who's managing in this scenario? It's an interesting question. You see, Noah's ark was built with his own hands, but it wasn't his. It was given to him from a vision from God. God gave him the idea, God gave him the plans, God gave him the directive, told him exactly how to put this ark together. And you may have built your ministry, ladies and gentlemen, your business, you may have done this from the ground up, but it doesn't belong to you. It's one of the main things about leadership we have to understand is whatever you're leading is not yours. That business idea, that initiative, that whatever that you created that came into your heart and that you lent your hands to, that you built up, was actually given to you by God. And let's hope by the Lord Jesus Christ it was given to you by God. And it's not simply an invention that you have come up with. You may have built your ministry, it's not yours. But what is that difference between leading and managing? And I'm trying to hit home the point about ownership, about what leadership is, and what management is, and where we fit into that spectrum. What's the difference between leading and managing? In the world, it's quite a confused thing, because most of the leadership books that you will encounter out there are from the business world, and they're written by business practitioners who are doing more managing than they are leading. It's important, because leading is quite different from managing. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're with me, we've boarded a plane, we're heading towards some exotic location. While we're on board the plane, the service is excellent, we're attended to very, very well, every need is met. The, the, the stewards are just absolutely perfect, cabin crew are attentive. It exceeds all our expectations. The experience of that flight is nothing short of outstanding. You actually dig into your bag, you take out notepaper, and you begin to write to the airline because you want to hand this off and say how wonderful this flight was. A few hours later, the plane lands smoothly and you disembark, only to figure out that you've arrived in the wrong place. <laughs> you've just experienced outstanding management, but terrible leadership. There is a difference between leadership and management. Let me give you uh, another illustration. Uh, leadership and management is, is like the use of a ladder. You see, when you take a ladder, you've got to know where you want to place it on the wall. And once you place it on the wall, then you or others can climb over that wall into a safe place and hopefully not over a precipice. Leadership is knowing where to place the ladder. Management is getting people to climb that ladder safely to get to the other side. There is a big difference between being a good leader and a good manager. And over the last probably 60 or 70 years in America, in American culture and business culture, there has been a confusion of leadership and management. Excuse me. In fact, we think that a good manager, because they are efficient, is a good leader. And it happens in the church. It trickles all the way down where we believe good management is great leadership. But if the ladder is not in the right place, it doesn't matter how well you climb it. Because when you get over to the other side, you're in the wrong destination. And it could be treacherous. It could be dangerous. So in the God-human relationship, he leads, we manage. Now, in our relationships to others, we are in a position of leadership. 
But in your relationship with God, He leads because He provides the vision. He tells you where to place the ladder. He has the insight and the foresight, knowing all things. He knows exactly what you should do. And our job is to lean on Him as hard as we can so He can place the ladder in the right place. And then we in our ministries get people to climb that ladder so that they can get to a destination that God has ordained. Amen? There's a huge difference between leadership and management. And the reason why I want to talk about that is that keeping focus God's way is understanding that you are not in control. God provides the vision. He provides the idea. And I hope that he has provided the idea for your ministry because that's highly important. You're not in control. And God really leads us. We manage God's business. Before we actually move on, I want us to think a little bit about God's vision for your life and God's vision for your ministry and for your family because he does have one. God has an ultimate plan and idea of where you should be and what you should be doing. And our task as God's managers, direct line, is that we listen to that voice and we figure out very, very carefully where God wants us. And the point of that is that your spiritual life must be good. We have to be well connected because we've got to get and receive the right instructions so our plane doesn't land in the wrong place while we manage it efficiently. So our second point was keeping heart. What was the first point? Okay. I was getting a little worried there. But I confused things, but keeping focus. The second part is keeping heart, understanding success. God's way. Now they lead one into the other. Because you're in leadership, because you have challenges and difficulties and personal hardships and apparent failure in ministry, you often measure whether or not you're doing the right thing based on how much success you receive. Isn't that right? It's also very easy for God's leaders to feel that his blessing isn't with us when we're doing badly, but when we're doing great, his blessing is with us. And that is completely opposed to what the Bible teaches us. God is always with his people. He's not whimsical. He doesn't just take off and leave you. And it's important for us to understand that. God is not punishing us as, as Job said. This is the human dilemma when you fall into trouble. Job said, God is punishing me for some thing I did in the past. Maybe it was from my youth. And because of that, we're apt to lose heart and become discouraged. And in this section, I want us to understand God's way of success, defining success. How would you define success? And if you could, I just want you to take a couple of moments. Write down your personal definition of success. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean? Just write that down. Some of you have notebooks or, or just muse about it for, for about a minute. I want you to think about that because I want whatever is in your heart to kind of come to the surface as we begin to deal with keeping heart and defining success. What's your personal definition of success? What does it mean to you? Right. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't copy anyone else. Because you're supposed to do what God's called you to do. Did you hear that? Okay, unfolding the visions that God has given. Anyone else? What's your definition of success? Yes, sir. Achieve the uh, purpose or the goal that initial set Achieve the purpose or goal that God has set for you. Very good, very good. Is there one more? So I hand over here. Fulfilling God's purpose. Fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Very good answers. Very good answers indeed. Very philosophical. What's the difference between success in the world and a biblical view of success? Now that's a little harder question. Often we don't think about success as it's defined in the world, but believe it or not, success in the world normally shapes the way that we look at what success is. See, in the world, success is almost invariably a number. It comes down to a number. In business, it's called the bottom line. In sports, it's called the score. In education and school, it's called a grade, a GPA, an ACT, or a SAT. But in the church, in your lives, in your ministries, in your homes, what does it mean to win? We can define a win easily 
in the world and in other pursuits, but what does it really mean for us to win spiritually? You see, in business, the goal is primarily profit. Now, this is not news to you. Nothing wrong with profit, nothing wrong with wealth creation. It's not a sin. Failing to be profitable, however, in business will eventually lead to that business going extinct. Winning and losing are not difficult ideas. They're high-stake ideas in the world of business. It's one of the reasons I believe that in the world of business, people put a lot of effort and a lot of attention into what they're doing. And like the Bible tells us, sometimes the children of mammon are wiser than the children of God in this age. I don't know if anyone's heard of the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Good to Great is, it really does a survey of all successful businesses, but not just successful business, businesses. Businesses that are not just good, but they're great. They exceed expectations. And it's remarkable to find out what it is that these businesses apply. And as I read these books on leadership and on management, one thing strikes me. Children of man are using the children of God's principles. You can find them directly in the word of God and they're being successful. It's amazing. There's another book by uh, one of the directors of Yahoo. It's called Love is the Killer App. Love is the Killer App. Now. Why would they say something like this? Because this particular leader found out that if they showed love to their employees, their employees were more productive. Wow. I think that idea is in the Bible. What about it? Fellowship and discipleship. So they are employing our principles, the principles of God, into their businesses, into worldly pursuits, and they're still becoming wildly successful while they do it. This is important. There is an important difference in how we think about success in the nonprofit world and in the for-profit world. And sometimes, because the nonprofit world is a little more forgiving if you fail or if you don't practice, don't really follow good practices of business, is that we kind of create a little bit of mediocrity in what we do. Can I say that? I'm saying this very carefully because I don't want to insult anybody. Now, at the same time that I say that, I'm not saying that you should go out and adopt everything that the business world adopts. But the children of mammon, in their age, are wiser. Didn't say they were smarter than us. Didn't say they were more resourceful. Didn't say they were more intelligent. It said they were wiser in applying what we know than the children of God in our time. And I believe that is true today. In business, financial investment is an input but it's also an expected output. They put money in, and when they turn the wheel of that business, they expect more money to spit out in whatever form that is, more market share or whatever. It all boils down to more money. Therefore, money is not just an input, it's an output. Now, in the church, in ministry, money is a necessary input because you need money in order to fuel the operations of your ministry, but the similarity ends there because money is not the expected or intended output of ministry. Isn't that right? You don't get into ministry to create money. Most of you figured that out by now, right? <laughs> the similarity ends there. Money is not an expected output. In fact, we're not in the for-profit arena. So the primary objective is transformed lives. This is investment God's way. It's investment creation in God's kingdom. Now, the author and business writer, Jim Collins, and I wanted to, to, to bring this to your attention. Jim Collins is not a Christian, but Jim Collins has studied the nonprofit arena as well. And this is what he said. He said, we must reject the idea, well-intentioned but dead wrong, that the primary path to greatness in the social sectors, nonprofits, is to become more like a business. Now, I found that interesting coming from a person who was not a Christian. He was not in the not-for-profit sector. He's in the for-profit sector, but he looked at us and he said, you should not adopt business practices to be successful. In fact, he thought it was wrong for us to do that. That doesn't mean that there aren't great and good and universal business practices, but in general, we should not try to become like for-profit businesses. And I think our challenge is figuring out on that road where we go and what we do. Now, we have to look at what the Bible says about it because that's why you're here and that's what I said in, in, in the blurb as you read it. A biblical view of success is found in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Now, we're not going to be able to read all of that. 
but I'm going to summarize it very quickly. The servant who had ten talents, we know it's the story about the talents. The servant who had ten talents and the one who had four, remember the one who had ten had five, he doubled it. The one who has four originally had two and he doubled it. After developing what they were both given, they both received, listen to this, exactly the same commendation and they got the same reward. Now that's not how business works today. That's not how we think about employment. It's not how we think about remuneration. It's not how we think about money. But with God, it didn't matter how much they had. What mattered is that they were productive. What matters is that they were faithful in what they did. So faithfulness is the biblical definition for success, not numbers. And this is important because I know that some of you are going to really obsess over the numbers. You're going to get graphs out and spreadsheets and all kinds of things. You're going to pull all kinds of data out. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But what I'm saying is, is that faithfulness is the biblical definition of success. And faithfulness to God in your relationship, faithfulness with what you do, being diligent about what you do, will lead to fruitfulness, which God looks for. And these men in the parable were fruitful. They were fruitful because they were faithful. Often we worry about the fruit before we worry about being diligent and being faithful in God's work. At the same time, Jesus was not oblivious to the numbers or the results. Remember in the, the feeding, the miraculous feeding? He was the one asking for an analysis of what was at hand at the front end of the miracle. So he said, okay, let's do some research. Let's find out what's out there before we do this miracle. Then after the miracle happened, he did some back-end analysis. He said, well, look, let's look at what was left. And he actually got them to collect and to count. So that means Jesus is actually interested in fruitfulness. He wanted to know the shape of the business. I'm just going to say business very loosely. But Jesus did not obsess over numbers. He just noticed them. You are not to obsess about numbers and indices for success. Whenever David got it in his mind that he would count the people, it was a bad idea. Because David started to obsess about numbers as if numbers were the only thing that you have to consider that God doesn't somehow play into that. There are places that you will work where you will not in your own mind and in the eyes of the world seem as if you're being successful, but God is looking for faithfulness. Amen. We are not to become depressed and downcast and shoved down simply because we don't feel the numbers are looking the way they should look. You need to always go back to have I been faithful? Have I been faithful? I think Mark Finley is here. Is he here? Mark Finley is here, not in this room. But you know the story about Mark Finley, right? Do you know how Mark Finley became a Seventh-day Adventist? He became a Seventh-day Adventist in a situation where the pastor who was preaching, who I've met, said that it was a terrible meeting. And no one came forward apart from this kid. Well, that kid happened to be Mark Finley. And how many people is Mark Finley baptized? Don't answer. Don't answer. Do not judge simply by the numbers, but be faithful. That pastor was being faithful in his calling. And by being faithful, Mark Finley heard the message, came into the truth, and has been tremendously fruitful. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but the increase is God. The increase is God's. The decision to serve as a leader comes with a baptism into conflict. Now you know that. Can I get an amen? amen. Has anyone experienced some conflict in leadership? <laughs> Most of you are just laughing and chuckling to yourselves like, do you know? Well, this is the part where we talk about maintaining your sanity as a leader. Maintaining your sanity as a leader. In John 16, Jesus says, I'm just going to, to paraphrase this, he's giving his disciples the last message in an attempt to encourage them. Listen, he's encouraging his disciples and he's preparing them for the future because he knows what is to come. He says, I've got bad news for you. People will persecute you. Some people will try to kill you. 
and many will think that they're doing God's work when they're doing that. Interesting. I must also tell you that I'm leaving and that after I leave, you're going to have trouble. Now, that was a great message. And I'm sure the disciples' hearts were encouraged at the end of it. But Jesus was giving them reality. He's saying, I'm telling you this so that you won't be shocked when it happens. What normally happens with us when we hit trouble? Why? Why is this happening? What have I done to deserve this? You don't have to do anything to deserve it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In fact, Paul said it. He says, all those that will live godly, that's right. It, it wasn't, well, you might suffer some. You might encounter it. It says, you are going to encounter suffering. You are going to get it. So leaders must have a biblical strategy for dealing with conflict. We've got to have a biblical strategy for, for grappling with this. In the Bible, now I know there are Myers, Griggs, and there are these other personality tests, but the Bible only gives or talks about three types of people. Now this is something that Henry Cloud talks about quite a bit. The Bible addresses three types of people. Wise, foolish, and evil. Let me say that again. Wise people, foolish people, and evil people. That's all the Bible describes. And the concepts you are about to learn might actually save you a lot of time, frustration, and money, and it might actually help to keep your sanity. We're going to look at a diagnostic of all three groups and how we handle them. Remember, we're talking about leading with passion and with purpose, and this is part of it. We've got to learn the skill. Wise people. A wise man, Proverbs 1.5 says, will hear and will increase in learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. It's essential in ministry that you quickly know who you're dealing with. Wise people, when you present the truth to them, a wise person sees the light and they make adjustments to themselves. So they understand what you're saying, they try to embrace it, they look at it and they see if it's true, and, and, and they try to figure out, well, maybe I need to make a change here. Now, we make a big mistake, and I think most of us make that mistake. In our culture, we like to treat everyone the same and think of everyone the same. We like to treat everyone the way that we like to be treated, because we assume that everyone is like us. But that's not right. In fact, that's a wrong idea. We live in an egalitarian society where we believe that every opinion is valid and everyone should be heard. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some people who should not be heard. Amen. And there are some opinions that aren't really valid. They're not based in truth. Now, if that were true, Satan would have a big point, wouldn't he? But is Satan's opinion equal with God's? No, no I don't think so. But we have this idea in this egalitarian society, and what it does is it influences the way that we think and believe as Christians. We think that treating everyone the same is the same as treating everyone fair, and that's not true. You are different. People have different circumstances. They come from different contexts. And the job of leadership is to look at that and make a leadership decision based on what it is that you're dealing with. Lazy leadership is the type of leadership that tries to create one rule just for everyone in dealing with people. But it's easier and it helps us go home and sleep at night and we say, well, we've treated everyone the same, so everyone is treated fairly. Not so. Not so. In fact, the biggest mistake we make is to think that everyone is like you. There are wise people, there are foolish people, and there are evil people. The traits of the wise is that when you give them feedback, they listen, they adjust their behavior accordingly, and they take responsibility for their performance deficiencies. The relationship is usually strengthened by having this encounter with a wise person. Now, does anyone here work with somebody else, or maybe you employ other people? Just let me see a show of hands here. All right. What is it like to, to work with a person who, when you speak to them and you address an issue with them, they say, well, you know what, I, I, I just didn't see it like that. I don't want to be perceived in that way. Um, what can I do about it? Let me, let me deal with that. Isn't it great to work with someone like that? It's a wonderful thing to work with someone like that. And if you're a reasonable person, you're like that. You'll think, well, you know, maybe something's wrong and I need to make a correction here. I need to make a shift or an adjustment in my behavior or, or, or my thinking. And you actually value it. And at the end of the day, the relationship between you and your boss is strengthened by it. 
It doesn't go downhill. That's the diagnostic of a wise person. When truth presents itself, they take light in and they make adjustments accordingly. Now let's go to a foolish person. The Bible says, Proverbs 9, 6, forsake the fool and live and go in the way of understanding. Now for some of you, you're thinking, I wish I could forsake some of the fools and I wish I could go another way. The Bible says, very emphatically, we should forsake foolishness and go into the way of understanding. Foolish people, the fool tries to adjust the truth so that he or she does not have to adjust to the truth. It's a big difference between a wise person and a foolish person. The traits of the foolish are this. When given feedback, they get defensive. They always have a reason why it's not their fault. When a mistake is pointed out, they blame others for it. Honesty usually destroys the relationship. That means the fact that you have brought it up to them, that you're talking to them about it, doesn't strengthen the relationship. It causes a breach in that relationship. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to know pretty quickly when someone is in front of you whether they are wise, foolish, or evil. It's important for us to know these distinctions. Now, now wise does not necessarily mean smart. It doesn't necessarily mean extremely gifted. Neither does it mean that the change will be instantaneous. But a wise person will always grow. They will always listen to counsel eventually. Now, some of you are thinking of a particular person right now, aren't you? The Rolodex of your mind is ticking over and you're thinking, who am I really working with here? And what am I doing? Does it sound like anyone you know? You see, ironically, the fool may actually be the smartest person in the room. Now, now hear this. They may be the most charming person in the room, but because a fool keeps us confused with their gifts. And because of our dependency in this culture on people's gifts, we are apt to keep a fool around, even though their behavior is telling us biblically, this person is a fool. It's not a wise person. And even though they're difficult to deal with, now everyone knows that you've all been on boards or committees at some point. And there's a person who is a real pain in the room, but we don't want to get rid of them because we believe they bring so many things to the table. In some ways, we kind of worship what it is that they have. We think that we can't do anything else but be, be, be slave to, to them and to their, their ways and their behavior. It's our attraction to their talents. So we continue to think that one more conversation and one more encounter and just a little more time and maybe a little more training and if we just gave it just, just another chance again, it will do the trick and it will work out well. But has that happened? Ladies and gentlemen, says the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish does not. A scorner loves not the one that reproves him, neither will he go to the wise. Someone who is being foolish will not go to someone who they know could probably help them who is wise. Because the nature of being foolish is that you want to stay as you are. This is important. How do you deal with a wise person then? with a wise person, you talk. You address the issues. They will be grateful, they will be respectful, and they will be honest. You be grateful and respectful and honest too. Give a wise person resources because they are normally productive with those resources. They are responsible. How do you deal with a fool? <laughs> I won't repeat that. How do you deal with a fool? Stop talking. With a wise person you talk, with a fool you stop. You stop talking. With a fool, only consequences matter. You've got to put around boundaries. Now, this is to keep your sanity in ministry. And a lot of you have sleepless nights with personal issues. You have big time challenges. You go late into the night trying to figure it out, having meetings and so on and so forth. And it actually costs you money because time is money. You stop talking. You create consequences. Address their unacceptable attitude directly. Stop talking around the issue because the issue is their attitude. What prevents them from hearing and from growing is their attitude. So stop talking about the symptoms of their attitude and talk about the core of their problem, being foolish. Now you don't have to tell them they're a fool at that point, but you're addressing, this is a strategy. You've got to also tell them that feedback 
to their performance, that me talking to you about what's going on here and what's working and what's not working is not optional. It's not an option. We've got to do it. Everyone has to be accountable. Everyone has to get feedback. Ask how they would like to receive the feedback. Give them some responsibility in this relationship. It's not optional that you're going to get feedback. Just tell me how you'd like to receive it. Would you like us to go out to lunch and do it? Would you like to do it in the evening, maybe at your house or my house? You decide where we do it, but it's going to have to happen. That's a non-negotiable. And usually in an employment situation like that, you should make it that either they fit the description of that position or they don't. And then staying there is a matter of whether or not they want to fit that job description. So you've got to put boundaries around it, not continue to be a slave to their gifts. Do not give a fool more resources. You don't resource them. Because the issue likely is that there are some problems with productivity. There's some problems with behavior. So you don't just give them more resources. In fact, you freeze resources. But now let's get to the category of evil people. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Evil people make us cry. Evil people make you terrified. They make you mourn. In Jeremiah 5.26, For among my people are found, what does it say? Wicked men. They lay wait as he that set a snares and they set a trap. They catch men. You see, their intent is to cause harm. Their intent is to set a trap, to do evil. That's what evil people do. Now, I, I really want us to kind of focus in on this one because we have a, a major problem in the way that we look at a wicked person or deal with a wicked person. Again, it goes down to how you think about yourself and in this egalitarian society that we believe that we should treat everyone the same. It's a major problem. We like to think that it's possible to reason with anyone and get through. Isn't that right? You and I like to think it, it, we can just reason with someone and as long as we reason, it's going to work. But that evil people by nature are not reasonable. Think about that. An evil person wants to do harm, not because they're reasonable, not because they have a particular reason. They want to do harm because that's what they want to do. That's who they have become, and because of who may be in control of their lives. So can you reason with a person who is not reasonable, who has set out to do harm? I'd say no. You can't treat everyone the same and expect to get the same results. In leadership, you've got to look at the person in front of you, and while they talk and while you rub shoulders, you've got to figure out who they are. Now, there's one thing that can be said about the fool, is that the fool has hope. Because if we're honest, you and I have been fools at some time or the other, Amen. right? And there's been hope for us. So you can always extend hope to the fool, but we just need some boundaries, we just need to draw some lines in the sand. We need accountability. But with an evil person, it is completely different. And your strategy for dealing with an evil person once you encounter them is to go into protection mode. Because if you don't go into protection mode, you're going to lose your ministry, you're going to lose your, your, your sleep, certainly, and you might even lose your sanity. The strategy for dealing with evil people are lawyers, police, and money. Now some of you may want to laugh about that, but it's actually very, very true. Let me give you an example. Many women, and increasingly today men, have to get restraining orders. That's lawyers and police. They've got to get restraining orders because they have partners or people in their lives who are destructive and who intend to do them harm. We know the statistics, even for battered women, for violence in the home. Does it get better? No. They've got to go into protection mode. They've got to remove themselves often from that situation. Because it doesn't improve, it actually escalates and gets worse. So dealing with an evil person, thinking I can reason with them, and if I just talk to them, it's going to work. It won't work because their intent is to harm you. It's to harm your business. They're people who, once they have been let go, they've got to be escorted out of the building. And, and, and you've got to pull the plug on their computer so they can't do any damage there. And they don't take any, any disks or any information or USB drive where they will try to sink your shit. There's a reason for that. Again, children of this world are sometimes smarter in that because they recognize that feature. And because we're good people, because we are godly people, we don't want to treat anyone like that. But if you're a leader, you have to understand and address people for who and what they are. 
So I want to recap with you. I want to recap. Leading with passion and purpose means keeping focus. Understanding God's way of leadership. Understanding that God leads and we manage. And actually it's a great concept to understand the difference between management and leadership. Because your people, if you are the primary leader, will look to you for leadership. Know where the ladder needs to be placed on the wall so people can climb. That's your job. The good news is that you can ask God, where should I put this ladder? Because God knows. So we have an advantage, always, as leaders. But managing is helping people get up the ladder. Management is more about using those resources efficiently. But you can only be effective if you've got good leadership. You can have great management and poor leadership and have a very efficient situation, but it's not effective because people aren't arriving where they should be, when they should be there. So keeping focus is understanding leadership God's way. The only way we can do that is to look to God. The second point we looked at was keeping heart. God's way of success. The reason why I use the words keeping heart is because we lose so much heart when we look at the results, when we look at the numbers. Don't obsess about the numbers. Notice them. In fact, get on your knees a little more and ask the Lord, Lord, bring fruitfulness to this ministry, but make sure that you are faithful because the indices for success in heaven is your faithfulness. Remember the servant who got four and the one who got how many talents? Ten. They increased, they doubled up, but they got exactly the same reward. So God was not rewarding them according to what they brought to the table. The reward was based on simply this, them being faithful with what the Lord had given them. So be faithful with what the Lord has given you. The third thing we looked at is keeping saying God's way to deal with people. Understand people. Save yourself time. Save yourself heart. Know who is in front of you. Know whether or not you're dealing with a wise person, a foolish person, or an evil person. And take appropriate action. It's great to think well of people and always do that. But also think realistically and act realistically. That's a task and the job of a leader. Let's keep saying. There's a biblical way to navigate the toughest relationship. I want to thank you for having me here and for allowing me to speak with you briefly about a few leadership concepts. But I want to close with an illustration. During the terrible Second World War, the Blitz, a father holding his small son ran from a building that had been struck by a bomb. This is a true story. It happened in London. After the building had been struck by the bomb, there was a massive crater in the ground. He needed shelter, so he, he jumped quickly into the hole, and holding up his arms, he shouted out to his son to follow. Now his son was just a little boy, and he was absolutely terrified with all the bombs going off, only hearing his father's voice telling him to jump. He replied to his father, I can't see you. I can't see you. The father looks up against the red-tinted sky and called out to the silhouette of his son standing there, and he says, but I can see you but I can see you. Jump. And the boy jumped because he heard the voice and trusted the voice of his father. Our faith and our trust in God enables us to face or meet death, not because we can see God, but because we can hear God. We have this certainty of knowing that although we cannot see, we are seen. And God does that. He gives us that as a blessing. He has the vision. He knows what's before us. He understands who we are. And I'm asking today that may God continue to bless you as you serve him and as you hear his voice. And most of all, when he tells you, jump. Thank you very much. You're welcome to the world of the pastor. Now, now nonprofit leadership, pastoral leadership, spiritual leadership is the highest form of leadership that there is. There is no carrot, there is no stick. So you're really going by whatever an individual is being motivated by. And as a leader, it's a good thing to understand who your people are and what motivates them. You know, um, for some people, uh, they may need more from you, they may need more structure and so on. But there's always something that motivates an individual to serve. 
And the reason they're there serving, they've got to be some kind of underlying reason. And sometimes it gets lost, you know, lost in the dust of, of, of ministry. But one of the things we can do as leaders is we can take the notch a little higher. We can lift expectations, not in a, in a demanding way, but in a way that inspires. We can say, look, what is it that we're here to do? You kind of go back to basics. What's the point? Why are we doing this? Why are we here? You revisit the basics, maybe even look at the history of the company and think, well, the company has this kind of history. What is the trajectory? What is our mission? It's always been this for 40 years. I don't know how old the company is, but every company has a story. And normally to inspire or re-inspire people, you've got to go back to the story of the company, go back to its foundations and its roots, retell some of the old stories if you can find them. It's a good thing as a leader to find them. Speak to people who were there before. And sometimes you get reinvigorated, you get a, a sense of direction. Because remember, we have nothing to fear for the future lest we forget where, uh-huh, right. So in some ways, what re-energizes people is that going back and saying, yeah, that is what we're about. That we've been doing this for so many years. Yeah, that's why I signed up. I forgot. You see, vision always leaks. Vision leaks from people. And as a leader, you've got to pour vision in daily. You've got to always be on point with the purpose and the function and the direction of the company. Always, always. And always positive. Stay positive. Stay on it. <laughs> How do I deal with gossip in the church? You know, um, as a person gossiping being foolish, Okay, so what do you do with a foolish person? You address them directly and you address the issue. You know? But that often creates company. <laughs> yes, that's what they well that's what they do. That's their job. But for us, what do we do? We address the situation with them and you set some boundaries. Now if you work in the church, there are parameters and boundaries, even for something like gossip, which is very divisive. You may have to have a sit down meeting with them individually first, and then you might have to take a couple of elders. But you have to show them that you're serious and that you do have a box here. You know, as far as gossip is concerned, there's zero tolerance. You know, you have to have these difficult conversations. But yeah, who are you? Who's standing in front of you is what you think of. Okay. Who's now, if you want this presentation, if you have a piece of paper, you want to leave your email, I can uh, I can send it out to you if that's useful for you. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, thank you for coming. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and God bless you. Thank you. God bless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.